Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. For the finale of our sixth season, once again, this is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. And today is really exciting because it's also our 150th episode. Woot woot. Really hard to believe. Can't believe we made it this far. We have, we owe all of you loyal listeners and fans of ours for helping us to get this far. It's just crazy to think how far we've come. So thanks, everybody out there. Totally. And we have a, a really exciting episode today that we're super excited about um, keeping in tradition with the way we usually wrap up these seasons. Uh, today is another spotlight episode about a composer. And in addition to a spotlight on their music, we're also going to sit down and talk with an acclaimed video game composer and today on the podcast we're really excited to have the music of chris hulsbeck who will also be joining us to chat later we're just really excited about it because there's going to be a great playlist of tracks and we're going to have a great conversation with chris yeah and chris really has a unique insight and a unique perspective that's different from anyone else we've talked to previously on the podcast so it's going to be a lot of fun you guys know chris's work uh, probably most famously from the turrican series of games you also know his music from the great gianna sisters series most recently the uh, twisted dreams which was a kind of a kickstarter backed project which came over the PC and the 360 and stuff like that. So yeah, this is going to be a really fitting episode 150 to play some great video game music and talk with a really uh, talented and unique composer. Absolutely. And to sort of give some context, uh, something that sets Chris apart from maybe some of the other composers we've had on this show is Chris is a German composer and he also, he got his start in computer music, specifically things like the Commodore 64 and the Amiga Amiga and things of that nature. So that's going to be something that we're really excited to talk with him about. And also sort of as a focus for this episode while we're listening to the music, because I think that is sort of a subset of video game music that it doesn't seem like we get to talk about enough is computer Mm. music. Absolutely. It's going to be so much fun. So we're going to play a handful of tracks up front. We're going to talk with Chris, and then we'll play a few more at the end. And after that, we're going to do a little bit of reminiscing, kind of talking about maybe the history of the show and just kind of reflecting on where we've come so far in 150 episodes. So stick with us on this entire episode. It's going to be a really good time. So let's get into it. You guys heard playing in, that was from Mega Turrican. That was stage 3-3. That was a Genesis version of the third game in the Turrican series. We're now going to play a track from uh, Chris's first kind of well-known game. This came up for the Commodore 64. In 1987, of course, this is the Great Gianna Sisters. We're going to play the menu theme. Let's take a listen, guys.
Very interesting piece of music. You guys are listening to the menu theme from the Great Gianna Sisters for the Commodore 64. Really kind of a quintessential Commodore 64 track. When you think about some of the unique things that these computer musicians were doing that the console composers weren't really doing, there's a lot of really interesting kind of modulation and really free chord movement that you don't really hear in kind of 8-bit console music of this time. Well, what does this track do that differentiates it in your mind from uh, some console music of the era? Well, I think there's a few things. I think I would say kind of technically the use of that, you know, arpeggiation and the way that they utilize the different channels of the hardware definitely has uh, a more distinct sound that I associate you know with like the Commodore and the Amiga rather than um, consoles Um, Mm. and also I feel like musically there's something about it that feels a little bit more sophisticated I guess I would say where this is a much more emotional kind of deep piece of music where especially you know when I'm thinking of 80s and 90s video game music as far as console games, oftentimes it feels that um, we're not, you know, having these kind of introspective moments. It's a lot mm-hmm. more about just kind of fun, feel-good action. And I think right. you do get a lot of that on computer systems. But also I think um, it's important to think that that platform, the way that you play games is different than you do with a console. With the Commodore 64, it did have, you know, plug-in controllers and things of that nature, but it's also a different piece of hardware. The way you interact with the games is different. So I think the pace in the nature of the games can almost, on computers, allow for a little bit more contemplation. And Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes the music reflects that. And especially when you compare this to, you know, like an NES track or something around a similar time, uh, you could definitely notice the difference in sophistication. I think some of the techniques that Chris uses in here um, honestly kind of remind me of some things like uh, Tim and Jeff Fallon we're doing also. Yeah, and we're going to hear more of that as we go on with today's episode. And now we're going to move on to more of, I guess, a quintessential Hulsbeck composition. What we just listened to is a little bit slower and tragic, but really, when I think about Chris, I think about really kind of dancey, groovy rhythms. Right. Uh, something that is reminiscent of the demo scene or, in general, just early computer music. So we're going to take a listen to a track from the Commodore 64 version of R Type. This is intro music. Let's take a listen.
guys are listening to intro music from the Commodore 64 version of R-Type. Yes, some very striking things to me about this piece. First of all, uh, a lot of the use of instrument switching. I really love those Commodore 64 instruments. They're but so I think classic. One most, yeah, one of the most striking parts for me about this track is, uh, you know, he's manipulating the pulse width on that one part um, with the dun 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 where the attacks are happening up and down. And it obviously starts, you know, with a... Uh, a more kind of bright pulse width sound and switches to that more um, vocal-like square sound. And what I really like about the Commodore 64 instrument, uh, it oftentimes that melodic lead instrument, it really almost, it sounds kind of like a compressed human voice. There's a huge mm-hmm. amount of expression to the timbre of it. You know, it really feels There lyrical. really is. Yeah, the SID chip is something that is so legendary, and people still are so interested in the sounds of it, whether whether or not they're a band that incorporates that kind of music, or still the demo sceners. Are, it's just, there definitely is something so iconic about the sound of the Commodore 64. So now I think it's time to kind of transition into the Amiga for a little bit here before we before we sit down and talk with Chris, the Amiga really was, uh, in my opinion, kind of where Chris was able to more kind of spread his wings as a musician, uh, do some really innovative things. So we're going to move on to a game uh, that I wasn't familiar before uh, this past week. This is Jim Power in Mutant Planet. came out for the Amiga in 1992, and this is a really cool track that uh, maybe some of you aren't familiar with. This is In Game One from Jim Power, composed by Chris Hulsbeck. Let's take a listen. a really fun track and this is a track that really kind of reminds me more of typical console video game music something like Mega Man Street Fighter it just kind of has that really kind of rocking energy to it and that's something that obviously later on in Chris's career he's going to do a lot of console work so it's cool to kind of hear this transitionary uh, era here this is Jim Power in Mutant Planet came out for the Amiga in 1992 this is just a great melody I hear so much pop influence just really melodic catchy melodies uh, that Chris composes in this era well yeah I think it's to me, I hear a lot of kind of pop chord progressions with really beautiful, sonorous melodies on top of it. That tends to be my favorite thing about video game music because yeah. it's the combination of the accessible with the really kind of more complex, the beautiful. It's it's the mm-hmm. mix of uh, complex and simple that I think is what makes game music so great. And yeah, I really am attracted to this melody. I like that 
You know, I really like melodies that have sort of a simple little motif or nugget that gets manipulated and then Mm -hmm. throughout the course of the piece, um, it really sticks with you. I think that's really tends to be what makes something catchy or memorable. Absolutely. Well, we're not going chronologically here, but now it's time to move on to really in a lot of ways what put Chris on the map. Uh, Probably the biggest game he had worked on at this point in his career. This is Turrican. It came out in 1990. Uh, The Amiga version is really what he considers kind of the classic version. Uh, This is the first game in the series. We're going to take a listen to Stage 1-1, also known as Mountain Madness from Turrican. Gosh, that's such a classic track. You guys are listening to Mountain Madness from Turrican for the Amiga, and this came out in 1990. This is composed by Chris Hulsbeck. Yeah, what's so cool about this is, in some ways, this sounds like Capcom to me. Like, this sounds, this reminds me of a lot of Japanese early video game music, and that's something I think is so cool, is there are definitely times uh, in his music when he sounds Western, he sounds European, but there are a lot of times when it just sounds like video game music, and it, at the end of the day, that's really all that matters, is just rocking and powering video game music, and it doesn't really matter where it comes from. I think that's one of the things that uh, people really resonate with Chris's music, is it's so universal. So I think almost anyone can enjoy it, you know? Right. I I think that's a really good point uh, about the universality of it. Um, Because I think it's really tapping into the great kind of philosophy of old school game composers, which is really about how the melodies come first, the groove comes first, um, the more accessible, fun aspects of the music. And I think that's something that it seems like, you know, we lose more and more... Uh, as we kind of approach the more modern era, but it's great to have somebody, you know, like Chris still around um, working in games, someone from that era that can bring with him that kind of wisdom and those pop sensibilities. Well, now we're going to move pretty far into the future to Great Gianna Sisters' Twisted Dreams. This was really uh, kind of a big deal for a lot of fans of the series and fans of Chris's music. This came out in 2012 for the PC, and then it was also ported to the 360, the PS3, Wii U, things like that. We're going to play one track. One of the cool things is this game was a really cool collaboration between Chris and um, another composer as well is the band uh, Machine Supremacy, which is like a Swedish synth metal band, and they did some great arrangements of his music. So let's take a listen to a track that Chris composed. This is performed by Machina Supremacy. This is in game four from Twisted Dreams.
listening to In Game 4 from Gianna Sisters' Twisted Dreams. Gosh, this might be my favorite track that we've featured on the playlist today. So cool. I really love the combination of, you know, the kind of old Commodore-sounding 8-bit instruments with the metal production. I, The sound of this track is just really stellar. You know, sonically, it's very pleasing. And all the musical ideas, I think, are really inspired. Mm-hmm. All the melodies have sort of an interesting rhythm to them and it all just it feels good it sounds good it's something that if you kind of check out uh you know it's rocking and it has that pulse and that groove that's going to inspire you to play better but also you know if you listen to it as a piece of music it's really catchy and it's oh it's just super satisfying it's really good well guys i think this now is a good time to sit down and talk with the man behind the music chris hulsbeck We're very excited to be joined by Chris Hulsbeck. Chris, uh, let me just be the first to say, Willkommen und vielen Dank für dieses Gespräch. <laughs> oh, so nice. Good German. I gotta say, that is the limit of my high school German. I, It's crazy how much I lost from taking a little bit of German. But thank you so much for talking with us, Chris. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. I'm very happy to be on. I listened a little bit in on your uh, previous podcast, so I know kind of what you guys are up to. Oh, awesome. So that's cool. Well, yeah, we're definitely very big fans of, of your work, and it's kind of crazy to think how many years you've been active in video game and computer music, so it's just such a such a treat to get to talk with you today. Yeah, it's now approaching 30 years, which is wow. uh, insane. Yeah, that is crazy. I mean, I don't... I feel like I never grew up past 25, <laughs> so uh, it's definitely weird. Just kind of in this limbo state, huh? <laughs> yeah, kind of. You know that in uh, 2011, they, um, the, the Game Audio Network Guild, they gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, wow. And oh, awesome. of course, I mean, I was, that was very, um, I was very honored about it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was thinking like, wait a minute, you know, my career is not over yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll get another one when you're 60. Well, I mean, I'm you sure. have had quite a lifetime even so far so i mean we definitely look forward to seeing what you do in the future but uh we're very astounded at what you've done already chris to get started let's go back can you take us back to sort of your childhood your introduction to music uh when you first kind of realized that you know writing or creating music was something that interested you yeah, so I, I grew up in a musical family, if you will. Um, grandma, my aunt, my mom, everybody, they were all piano teachers, mm-hmm. uh, especially my grandma. She was actually very well known in town and uh, she, was, uh, she had a lot of students. And so we always had like musical instruments in the house, um, particularly pianos. Mm-hmm. And I started to hammer away on those, um, I don't know, as early as age three. So that that's the childhood background there. I uh, had about two years of uh, piano lessons from my grandma, mm-hmm. but she was this like she was very old school, kind oh, of yeah. like a dragon lady with the stick, and she was <laughs> would hit her students. <laughs> oh and man! Not not to talk too bad about my grandma. I, mean, <laughs> I love that too, but I mean, I was I was not that interested in playing other people's music. Turned out really. Uh, and after two years, I, um, I, I hang it up and I was starting to play my own music. And How old were you at the time you started to create your own stuff? Um, I don't know, around seven, eight. Wow. Oh, nice. And 
at first I was then also like playing a lot of stuff that I just heard on the radio. I played it by ear. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I got into electronic music. Um, there was a radio program over in Germany that played um, one hour of electronic music every week. Oh, perfect. So I got into Kraftwerk, Tangerine Dream, Jean-Michel Jarre, uh, Vangelis, uh, all those early pioneers of electronic music. And I really admired that sound. And it was something new that wasn't there before. And I Oh, absolutely, yeah. Especially Kraftwerk. Is there a particular album or track of Kraftwerk that really kind of hit you over the head back in that day? I was much more uh, into Tangerine Dream. I love that uh, White Eagle uh, soundtrack, which, by the way, is, is, is kind of a sad day today because Edgar Froese passed away. Oh, that's unfortunate. Read. I know, I know. So uh, I was actually very fortunate to have seen them in concert about a um, year and a half ago. Oh, okay. Uh, over here. And um, yeah, I was very sad. I didn't, I, I don't think he was sick per se, but um, mm -hmm. so that, that was definitely cool that I was able to see them. Absolutely. Um, and I hope that the, that the band can continue. But I mean, he was the main guy there. So we'll see what happens. That's really too bad. Well, that makes a lot of sense uh, when you're talking about, you know, kind of how you got introduced to electronic music. Because obviously I would say what you're uh, kind of most legendarily known for is the early C64 and Amiga, the computer scene. Some people call it the demo scene. Uh and in 1991, uh, I believe if that was correct, uh, it may have been late 80s, you released the demo Shades, which you actually won. Uh, there was, can you want, you want to talk about, there was some sort of contest for the C64. Do you want to kind of give some context for people who might not be familiar, kind of paint a picture of what was the kind of the environment of these people that were really into the C64 back in the 80s? Right. So... One reason why I got into home computing and particularly the Commodore 64 was that um, uh, I couldn't afford a, a real synthesizer. My family <laughs> wasn't that rich and these machines were very expensive. Right. Um, and so I was always dreaming of having my own synthesizer. And when I read in a magazine that the Commodore 64 had a synthesizer sound chip and I, I was like reading over the specs over and over and, <laughs> you know, like three voices and different waveforms and... Uh, it had everything, filters and stuff like that. Yeah. So I knew, wow, you know, here's this home computer for like about 500 bucks that I could have. And it's got a real synthesizer built in. So I was like, I got to have that. And uh, so and then I, and then I got the computer. And the first thing I was doing for a year or so was playing games. <laughs> <laughs> Just wasting time. Exactly. That's how these things go. Right. But absolutely. I never lost sight of that. And I started programming. I actually wanted to become a game designer. Oh, wow. Um, that was one thing that I aspired to, but really wasn't that good in designing games. Mm -hmm. um, I became a pretty decent programmer, though. I moved on from basic to machine language assembly. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And um, I wrote like one or two games and they were pretty bad. But a friend of mine, <laughs> he actually had already sold the game to a company and he needed sound because he wasn't good with sound. So I made ah. music for his game that was called Planet of War. Oh. And then that got actually released later than Shades. And really? Shades... Yeah, Shades um, was a contest in a 64 magazine mm -hmm. over in Germany. It was a pretty, pretty well-known magazine. 
and uh, that was actually that was late 80s technically right actually the the contest was announced at the end of 85 oh, and wow. i sent in my uh, shades music piece in february 86 okay and uh like a week later or so they called me that i won and i couldn't believe it because my my initial goal was just to get on the cover disc <laughs> so I didn't even like think I had a chance to win this, but um, right. to my surprise, I did, and uh, that essentially started my uh, helped a lot to start my career. I would think. Oh yeah, I imagine. You know, um, I'm curious, Chris, when you were working on these early games and you were doing sound, were you also responsible for sound effects and things? And in early, you know, like computer music, how was that stuff all synthesized? Right, so yeah, sound effects as well. They came a little bit later. The um, the first games that I worked on, they had only music in the background, and then we got into sound effects a little bit later. And the so after Shades, uh, another thing that I did, and it's worth mentioning, is the sound monitor, which is right. uh, absolutely probably the, the the granddaddy of all uh, trackers that you that you have today. Well, because it's it was more musical, right? It was a little bit more intuitive, would you say? What happened was the uh, the shades are actually hacked into the memory with a program called a monitor program, which shows you the memory locations, and you just hack in hexadecimal numbers. Right. And um, so, I mean, I had my system laid out, and it was in my head, but it was very unintuitive the whole thing. Yeah. And the the editor who talked to me a lot after I won Shades. Um, he he wanted to know more about the process and stuff like that. And I told him I could probably make a, a program that would um, make it easier to input this data and then probably give more people access to making music on the Commodore 64. And he said, if I do that, then it will probably become another listing of the months, which uh, also has like a cash price and so I figured I needed that anyway for myself. Yeah. I made that then for the um, for the sister magazine, which was called Happy Computer. And uh, that was, uh, I think, in the fall of 86, the sound monitor. So 86 was a huge year for you. It, it was huge, yeah. And I was still in school at the time. Hmm. and uh, But I already knew kind of that would be uh, a career option for me because I was only in school... Um, because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, I, mm -hmm. so I went to like the the um, a little bit past high school equivalent of what we have in Germany, but uh, I never wanted to really go onto a university and study something. So, but, for all of the programming and things, uh, were you mostly like self-taught in that regard? Did you have help from friends, or did you just kind of figure it out? Uh, all self-taught, but obviously the uh, my friend who had sold his game to a company, he was pretty good programmer as well, and then I had a couple of other friends, and we were always exchanging the latest tricks, and and uh, we we learned from each other, essentially. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, most most is self-taught, including my, you know, my music composition stuff is all self-taught. Well, I get the sense that, at least back in, in those days, that kind of whole demo scene and the people that were really into programming and making music for the Commodore 64, that seemed to be more big in Europe. W was it specifically Germany, or would you say it was all over Europe? Where do you think was kind of uh, where that stuff was the most popular? Uh, definitely all over Europe. Okay. I know that, for example, the, the, the home computing scene in the U.S., 
um, was more like centered around apples and then yeah. the Amiga and they were older folks also I mean in Germany mm -hmm. I think the average age of um, of us was around like you know mid to late teens oh wow and over here um i think because i was at a meeting um, a couple of years ago of amiga enthusiasts here and mm -hmm. uh, it struck me how old they all were so they were at least like 10 20 years older than than we were that's interesting so it was like a different kind of scene definitely and by the way, I was never really part of the demo scene because uh, when I started out, that was just uh, becoming something. Yeah. And I immediately after Shades and Sound Monitor, I actually called up the biggest game developer over in Germany, Rainbow Arts. And I just called him up on the phone, told him about uh, the contest and what I've done and played some tunes over the um, telephone. And the guy hired me on the spot. Oh, uh, for great Gianna sisters. That's so great. Well, can, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, kind of your first big break as as a, a big game, the Great Gianna Sister. I think that came out in '87, if I'm not mistaken. Do you right. kind of want to talk about uh, kind of what that was like to do the music? How much direction did you have? How much freedom did you have to create your own musical ideas for that game? I mean, they had some. They had a few ideas. The the boss of Rainbow Arts. He was very passionate about. Um, he, he loved that Madonna True Blue album and he wanted me <laughs> to uh, do something that sounds a little bit like that. <laughs> That's uh, funny. Not, not the cover version, but I mean, if you listen to the title theme of uh, Jana Sisters, um, you hear a little bit of True Blue. And that, oh, by that's, by the way, cool. is, is something that uh, I always have to point out. Most people think the title uh, theme is the one that actually plays in the menu when you start up the game and oh. you press the button. That's actually the menu theme. The title theme has like this, just a graphic. And most of the versions that are floating around out there don't have that. Interesting. Because it was something that was loaded first from the disc and then the actual game loaded. So most of the so-called cracking groups back then, they just left that out and so to be clear the menu theme is the a little bit more tragic one right that didn't do didn't exactly. do, didn't do. yeah okay yes. yes and that that was i had freedom for that and then in game they wanted something that had a little bit of a reggae vibe right and um so that's that's how that came about but overall i had um a lot of freedom uh, back then and i just did what i thought was fun and, and playful Interesting in that regard is also that, uh, you know, the game is um, a pretty brazen clone of uh, Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> and, and there seemed to be a little bit of hot water for that. I don't know if there was a lawsuit, but was there what exactly happened back in that? Did, did Nintendo ever have a problem with that? Yes. Well, it came out in Germany, was quite successful there. And then they uh, started distributing it to other countries. And one was uh, Britain. Mm -hmm. And the distributor over there uh, made the mistake of putting a reference to Mario Brothers right oh. on the package. <laughs> it's, and, and in the advertisement where it says, like, move over, Brothers, here come the Jonas. Oh, my gosh. And that was the last straw for Nintendo. And they sent yeah. a very nasty letter. They never sent um, an attorney, but they threatened. They said, like, if you don't take this off the market, we're going to start a lawsuit. And wow. That's when they decided, okay, let's cut our losses here. And, um, and I mean, at, at that time, it had already sold pretty well. So they figured, right. okay, we're going to cancel this and start with our next projects. That makes sense. Well, I think it makes kind of sense maybe now to move on to 
arguably what you're known for most as far as a series of video games. We're going to move on to Turrican. Now, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, this was also Rainbow Arts, correct? Yeah, it started at Rainbow Arts, and then really the the one that like really exploded onto the scene was the Amiga version. Yeah, uh, which was done by a team called Factor Five. Really, and that we'll get to this later, but you actually were involved with Factor Five for a long time. Yes, we had like a very long working relationship, and they were also the ones who ultimately got me to the U.S. And I worked there for 11 years as the um, music director. That's so cool. Well, yeah, there, there's something related to that that I'm really excited to touch on later in the interview. But if we're going to be going back to the very first Turrican, uh, one of the cool things about the series, and I'm thinking specifically Turrican 3, that's maybe my favorite, uh, and I'm really familiar with the Genesis version. How much uh, involvement did you have on all the different ports? Like, as far as the music, was there someone else who implemented the Genesis version of the later games, or did, were you just the Amiga and C64 guy? No, I actually did very little work on the C64. There was also not that much music in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the main one is definitely Amiga. And then I did do the port for Super Nintendo, so Super Turrican uh, 1 mm-hmm. and 2, and the uh, Mega Turrican. There's a different one. There's another um, Genesis version floating around that was done by, uh, I think, um, British team. And oh. that one was actually quite crappy. <laughs> oh, yeah, because Mega Turrican, that pretty much is Turrican 3, right? Yes, and that was done by, by Factor 5, okay. and um, uh, I did the music for that, uh, and I completely covered it myself. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned working um, on the Super Nintendo ports. What was it like working on that console, and how is it different from some of the computer systems? Right. I mean, we were always like looking for the next thing. And after uh, the Amiga was kind of starting to fade in, I mean, it was still very popular, but you could see the writing on the wall with Commodore um, not having a follow up and uh, struggling. And uh, we were looking for the next thing. And obviously it was the game consoles because they became like mainstream in the US and in Europe as well. And uh, so Factor 5, um, went into that and uh, I was excited of it because I always looked for like more voices and more memory and stuff like that. <laughs> well, you definitely got more with the SNES. Yes, I, and I was very happy about that because that way I could also like fully play out the in-game tunes without having the sound effects interrupt voices and stuff like that. What is your preferred version of the music of those games as far as the SNES, uh, the Genesis, the Amiga? What do you think sounds the best to you? Uh, they all have their pros and cons, I would say. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously the Amiga is the original and it's uh, uh, very dear to my heart. But the Super Nintendo sounds uh, very clean and and very different, too, because of that filter that's um, running all the time and that echo effect that you could incorporate and the eight voices that you had. So uh, I'm fond of all of them. Uh, The the most fun I think I had was the um, uh, Genesis version because... Ah. Uh, that system had so many different ways of producing audio. We had um, we had the FM voices, and then we used also the PSG chip that um, was in there for the Master System com- right. compatible stuff. We used that at the same time, and then we also we we actually did something that wasn't quite what uh, Sega had approved, but we got around it somehow. 
they used the C80, which was the processor that was exclusively meant to work for the master system. Huh. We we did, um, or Factor 5 actually did a sample um, mixer where we had two sample voices mixed on the C80. Wow. That's so cool. And output that as well. So in total, I think we had something like 12 voices to play with. That's insane. And they all sounded different. They had a different vibe. So that was... Well, there you go. That's why I was always so floored how lush the Genesis versions of uh, especially Mega Turrican sounded. And that makes a lot of sense now. You had so many voices to play with. Yes. That's really cool. And also I had I had started to really get into the FM programming and in the beginning it was super hard and I was cursing all over the place. <laughs> but uh, at some point it just clicked and I got uh, really... I got the, the knack for it on how to um, do like a s good sawtooth sound with a certain filter type of um, emulation on the FM chip and stuff like that. So I could then really get into the more analog sounding voicings there and stuff like that. So it was really fun figuring that out and making the most out of it. That's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, I got to say for me, like I said before, uh, Mega Turrican, I think my favorite track in the whole series is probably Air Combat. Uh, I just think the groove, uh, the 6-8 the pulse, but the melody is so strong. It really feels like a classic video game melody to me. As far as uh, back in that era when you were um, starting a song, what was kind of the first thing you started with? And maybe what was the thing that you put the most uh, attention to as far as the melody, the chords, the groove uh, back in that time? I think that was all over the place. I mean, in a lot of cases, I started really just with a melody on a piano. Mm. I have a piano patch uh, or like a synth sound and I just played around left hand I would just hold some bass notes and on the right hand I would play some melodies and that that was usually the starting point and then pretty quick after I had something catchy then I would um, add like drums and, and a, a bass line mm -hmm. stuff like that um, it, I think there were very few cases where I started out with just a beat right I was always coming from the melody side. That's awesome. You know, you can definitely hear that. Uh, so one thing that I think is really exciting, and I think uh, obviously a lot of people were, were really excited about, is if we just want to talk briefly about uh, the remix, just because we're, we're talking about Turrican, the really cool anthology project you did, you made three volumes of uh, remix reimagined music from the Turrican series. Do you want to talk about kind of the inception of that whole project? Uh, yeah, so the... I don't know if you're aware of, but I released a soundtrack album for Tar with Tarakan Music in 93, mm -hmm. uh, which was my fourth uh, studio album. And uh, obviously on a CD, you only have like 73 to 75 minutes room. So I had to make really like a selection of tracks and I couldn't feature everything. And uh, immediately after I already thought, wow, this I think this needs like another volume. But then the years went on and um, at some point I wasn't able to justify the production costs and getting that together. And so it was like on the back burner for a long time. And so in, I think it was 2011, I saw a friend financing his uh, album on Kickstarter. And that's mm. when I became aware of that concept that you could, uh, you know, ask your fans to chip in with production costs. And so I thought that might be the way to do it. And then in 2012, uh, I got everything together to, to actually do it. And it was, 
Yeah, it was planned as a three album or three CD album at the time, but mm -hmm. then it became super successful and we added a fourth album. And uh, it's pretty much complete, I think. I think there's not much missing from that collection. That's really awesome. Well, that's really interesting. And I think that does kind of bring us more into the modern era, I guess I'd say. And with that, I, I sort of have an interesting question that's kind of burning in me, which is in the 21st century as a composer and you're working on a game project, how is that different? And knowing your background, you know, when you started off with computer music and things where you're kind of the music you create, you're creating the final product. You know, you're not just writing it in a vacuum and giving it to an orchestra to perform. Yet, games and game soundtracks have larger and larger budgets. Are you still finding yourself being very hands-on when you work on music to contemporary games? Or has the role sort of changed? What is it like being a composer for you in the 21st century? Yeah, I would definitely say that um, the, the the composing part is now more important than the technical aspects. Mm. I mean, back then we were really just like um, fighting the limitations that the hardware had. And um, it was good that I was a programmer because I could realize the ideas and tricks that I had um, myself and, and program it into my, my player and stuff like that. Right. But uh, nowadays, it's really much more open field. And um, I mean, to be honest, there's also a lot more competition now with very talented people coming in, even from the film industry. Well, that's for sure. And that has changed a lot. But then again, it, it still helps if you're a, a gamer at heart and you understand the, um, the differences between games and, uh, you know, like a non-interactive medium like film. Mm hmm uh, because that that is still just as valid today as it was back then, if not more so. I mean, you want a soundtrack yeah. that can react to the situation on screen and uh, players can take different directions. So you have to right. be aware of that and prepare the music in a way so that it can react to the um, changes that are happening in the game. Absolutely. So with, with the modern era, I think one thing as of late that uh, anyone who's a fan of yours who's listening to this episode would be really mad if we didn't mention is uh, Gianna Sisters' Twisted Dreams. So do you kind of want to talk about how that project got started in your close collaboration with uh, your fellow composer as well as the really interesting band that did these really great metal versions of your music for that game? Right. So uh, I, I first became aware of the project beginning of 2012. And uh, they showed me some uh, demos and I thought like, wow, this looks really great. The graphics were so updated and it was a totally different game now too. I mean, it, it has still some of the elements, but it's also, it's not a Mario Brothers anymore. <laughs> and uh, and uh, they re did really an awesome job with the uh, graphics and the new gameplay. And uh, one of the main elements was that, or most of your listeners probably have seen it, yeah. is that you can switch the world. So you have uh, these two characters and you can switch between them, which also makes for interesting gameplay mechanics. But And music too. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, the whole graphic morphed from one view to another and I thought like, wow, this looks really cool. I uh, wonder if we could do something like that with the music as well. And then I was like in the thick of it with um, the Hurricane soundtrack anthology 
and mm -hmm. uh, I knew that would be a collaborative process because I was just swamped with work. Right. Uh, but the idea that I had was um, I remembered a remix from uh, this uh, Swedish sit metal band Machina Supremacy yeah. from the early 2000s um, where they had taken one of the prominent uh, Genesis tunes and made a heavy metal guitar kind of uh, cool version of it. <laughs> and um, I thought maybe we can do something like that where the soundtrack switches over between like an electronic version and one that's played with a metal band, you know. And that's how the idea came about. And then I um, got them together and we talked about it. We worked out a budget and we, we got it done and it worked out beautifully. That's so great. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about as far as if there's any particular piece of music? Because I know you mentioned it was kind of a close collaboration. Was there any kind of piece of music in that game that uh, kind of, I guess, that means the most to you personally? Uh, I really enjoyed uh, that in-game four working on that. Uh, that was one of the first pieces that I composed, and then obviously the the new title track, right. which still has some some elements of the original, but then it morphs into something new. And I think it's 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 it turned out quite a catchy tune. So yeah, and that's always one of the challenges. And it feels like we're entering this new era of uh, obviously in films we've been kind of so sick of all the remakes, but in games now we're getting a lot of these remakes. And I think one of the challenges is you don't just want to have remixes of the themes that everyone knows. You have to have new stuff too. And I think what's so cool about Twisted Dreams is it as walks a line of it has a lot of really great new original uh, melodies, but there's also some it pays homage to to what came before it. Was was that something that you thought about initially? where it's like, okay, we have to have a lot of new stuff, or how did that work? Yes, in fact, that that was the main objective. I think it was more like that we wanted to sprinkle in some of the old stuff just for fun, and, right. but it, it was supposed to be a new soundtrack, definitely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, the one thing I, I kind of alluded to earlier as far as your work uh, with Factor 5, and it makes so much more sense now, I remember being so surprised back uh, a few years ago when I saw your name on the Wikipedia page for Rogue Leader, uh, Rogue Squadron 2, one of my favorite games uh, for the GameCube. It was a launch title for the GameCube. Really, I think, the best launch title uh, for that system. It, it still looks and plays amazingly in 2015. Do you want to talk about your involvement on Rogue Leader? Yes, absolutely. So, in fact, there was one version before, which was the original Rogue Squadron, Star Wars Rogue Squadron for the N64. Right. Great game as well. Thanks. And that was actually the reason why Factor 5 brought me over to the US, because oh. it was uh, uh, the last console by Nintendo, that, which was a cartridge-based system. Mm -hmm. And so the soundtrack had to be sequenced, or if you, if you will, a bus like a combination of MIDI and samples. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was the reason. And I was originally only supposed to stay for a year. And after that, they, we decided, okay, um, I liked it here and they wanted me longer. And there was already talks about the next Rogue Squadron and follow-ups. And that's when I decided to stay in the U.S. So obviously Rogue Leader... Uh there's a lot of John Williams, you know, film music that was used. Did you compose any like original music to kind of be incidental in between that? Or was it just a way of like arranging the Williams music? It was about 50-50. So we, okay. we decided early on also with Rogue Squadron, same thing, to have a mix of uh, original 
music from the movies and um, newly composed music as well. Which was, by the way, uh, quite anxiety-inducing for me because <laughs> I'm such a big John Williams fan and uh, oh I, my I knew that uh, LucasArts and, and the ranch, um, George Lucas's <laughs> uh, legal department or whatever, they had a close eye on this whole thing and uh, they had the last say. So uh, it was always like a little bit of a nail-biter if I would send over my pieces and get approval. Well, Chris, that is so funny because now the streak continues. Every single guest I believe that we've had on the podcast, we've mentioned John Williams in some fashion. So, of course, the streak continues. We have to talk about John Williams. I love John Williams. I think uh, in terms of film composers, he's, he's, he has the top spot, no question. Do you remember when uh, you first saw Star Wars? Actually, interestingly, I missed the first one and I started with the second one. And, oh, that, wow. and that was already after I watched E.T. And E.T. was really the movie where I first heard about John Williams' music. And right. That's interesting. That was also, uh, um, it was a vinyl album that I bought. How old were you when E.T. came out? It was in 1980, I think, um, or so. And it, I, I must have been 12. That's the perfect age. Yeah. And I was so blown away by the sound. And uh, yeah. then, then I went to the second Star Wars. It, that's, I think, my favorite Star Wars movie of all time. Anyway, oh, yeah. Empire Strikes Back. You know, there, he introduced the Darth Vader theme in there. And it was just unbelievable. And ever since then, I... You know, I I bow to him. <laughs> yeah. Well, what a dream for you to get to work on a Star Wars on multiple Star Wars games, and you know, create things alongside with that music and arrange it. I mean, that must have been such a treat. And now, my question is: when you write uh, any kind of orchestral music, or you do work for modern games, uh, is Williams definitely sort of an influence in your own writing? In a way, but I, I also have to, uh, I understand my limitations and I mm. also like a lot of other music, the music of late Jerry Goldsmith and um, oh, yeah. somewhat of a Hans Zimmer fan as well and uh, yeah. a lot of other composers. So I don't, the, the thing is, I mean, there's probably never going to be a second John Williams really. Yeah, and uh, I I have my um, my style of music, and uh, I'm more into electronic music than really orchestral. I mean, I like both, but electronic music is really where my heart is. Totally. Uh, so yeah, but I still listen to a lot of film soundtracks, and uh, one one of the ones that really stood out in the last few years was obviously the uh, uh, Tron, the the second imagining of Tron. Was the Daft Punk soundtrack? I Absolutely, right, right. I was a big fan of that soundtrack as well, and it just kind of got me excited because when they released their follow-up, their you know their album, Random Access Memories, right. that was really for me because I I've always been a huge Daft Punk fan, but for me that was the combination of it was a little bit less electronic and just more based on kind of like funk and disco, and that's for me what my favorite music is. So I loved hearing that. Totally, I also really enjoyed that Giorgio Moroder piece on there where he is also yeah. talking about it that was uh, really cool it was cool the way they did it because it, in, in some ways that the idea of doing that could be considered kind of cheesy to have that on a cd but the way they did it it was really paying respects but the music underneath right. it was really well done yeah that album was just amazing exactly 
Well, maybe to wrap things up here, uh, one of my questions for you is, as far as music in video games, are there any sort of contemporary game soundtracks that you've been a fan of? Or even sort of, because you've had a really long career throughout your career, what are some notable game soundtracks, maybe, you know, video games where the music really stood out to you in a powerful way? Journey was really awesome. Uh, Austin Wintory. Oh, yes. And then uh, a couple of years back, there was one that actually sounded like almost like a melting of uh, John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith. That was for an obscure Sony game called Africa. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. I think it's like a safari. And the uh, composer is Wataru Hokoyama. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, you should check that out. Definitely. Good tip. Especially since you're you're a John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith fan as well, you'll. Thanks for that tip. That I've never even heard of that game. <laughs> I know, very talented dude. And then I'm a big fan of Jasper Kid and the Assassin's Creed series. Oh yes. And uh, another thing that stood out for me was uh, Uncharted series. That Greg Edmondson. Absolutely. The last thing I, I just want to, before we let you go, Chris, is there anything, I know a lot of times there's projects that we're all involved in that we can't talk about. Is there anything that you're currently working on that you can talk about uh, as far as kind of like next steps for you, next projects? Well, I'm super busy right now on the Piano Collection, which is my own new mm. project. I just wrapped up another Kickstarter. And this is this is an album that I had planned for a quite long time now. And it's okay. it's piano renditions of my... Uh, best-known pieces and along with that it's not just an album uh, but we're also preparing sheet music uh, it's another wow. big collaborative project I'm working with a pianist over in Germany his name is Patrick Nevian and uh, he's he's a very good pianist and arranger and he really gets my music and I'm working that's awesome closely with him and then I also have a team there um, the the guys from sound of games they're uh, helping me preparing the actual sheet music and we're doing it in a in a book form where there's actually two pieces for each so there's um, the version that's on the album which is uh, more for advanced players and then we also have like a beginner's version so fans who are into learning the piano they can start with the beginner version and then move up later Wow, that's really fantastic. That's yeah. going to be so great. That's a really great project. Well, once again, Chris, I just want to thank you for joining us. Uh, listeners of the episode, you can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris underscore Hulsbeck. Chris, thanks so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. And and you guys are composers as well. I listened to some of your stuff. There's definitely some fun stuff there as well. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. Yeah, no, it, it's kind of an exciting. We're very, very new to this to this crazy industry, but we, we have high hopes for, you know, seeing what we right. can do in the future. Are it's you guys going to the Game Developers Conference? Uh, n can't quite afford it yet. Hopefully, may maybe next year. <laughs> okay, that sounds good, because that's definitely the place to be if you want to mingle with developers. Yeah, yeah, I think right now it's just it's just a matter of when, but yeah, maybe next year that's a good goal for us to try to make that happen. But yeah, thanks again for talking with us. You're welcome. Great talking to you, Chris. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Absolutely. It was our pleasure. Also like a shout out to the fans out there. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, have a great day, Chris. You too. Thanks, guys. Man, 
that was so much fun. Thanks again, Chris, for taking the time to talk with us. That was a really interesting conversation. Absolutely, yeah. We love these interview episodes because it really gives us a lot of insight, um, both you know, for having this podcast, gives us more context for the music that we play, but also as composers ourselves to get to speak with you know, such a legend and mm-hmm. a veteran video game composer. So thanks again, Chris. Um, we really enjoyed talking to you, and we look forward to hearing more of your music in the future. Absolutely. But now I think it's time for us to get back into the episode play yeah, some more music. Yeah, we're going to play some more music uh, particularly more from the Turrican series because obviously yeah. that is maybe what he's known for most and we touched a lot on in the interview on that series. So let's play a track from Turrican 2. Again, we're going to play uh, the Amiga version. This is a really cool track called The Desert Rocks. an interesting piece of music. You guys are listening to The Desert Rocks from Turrican 2 for the Amiga. This came out in the year after the first one. This is 1991 here. Such an interesting track. It really goes in so many different directions. Starts off very happy and empowering, but then that second section, a lot more mystery to it. Ah, this is interesting. There's so much that I love about this piece. This opening section, I really like the use of those kind of slash chords. It feels a lot like 80s pop music or honestly sort of like a lot of uh, musical theater score mm-hmm. you know using where you you keep sort of a pedal tone in the bass but move the chords a little bit in parallel voices yeah. that's how you get that kind of 80s pop sound i love that but also when that melody comes in you're right it's a very kind of mysterious intricate little melody and something that really caught my eye just as far as how it was implemented which i think is kind of brilliant that delay you know, it's not really part of the grid oftentimes in video game music you know composers will delay the melody to give that sense of sort of a wide open space or right. you know, it's reverberant or it's large but oftentimes they'll do you know a perfect sort of 16th note delay or like an eighth note delay at a quieter volume but this one it delayed not really in the grid or the tempo of the song which almost made it feel more organic it faded yeah. it made it feel like you were hearing like a natural sort of echo that wasn't in you know the same metric feel of the melody itself and i really I know what you mean i i really respond to that kind of added touch as far as when you're implementing a track because especially mm-hmm. you know when you're dealing with such limited resources if you're able to use tricks like that to make it feel a little bit more organic a little bit more kind of yeah. human one thing i love about chris's music and i'm sure this is common for more uh Uh, people that came out of the Amiga and the C64 scene is that this music is so much longer than typical video game music. Uh, The form, it just, it keeps adding new sections and it really is something that... That's a good point. uh, uh, Just as a musical album. And by the way, I do want to give a shout out. You can find a lot of his music, almost everything, um, on his Bandcamp uh, or his website. 
So feel free, guys, to head on over and, and buy some of this music because it's it's readily available online and it's so good. And, and what I was talking about with that album is that because there's not as many loops and because the music kind of is more exploratory, it really is more of an interesting experience as far as listening to the whole album. You don't really get sick of the tunes as much as you probably would uh, otherwise. Right, yeah, it doesn't have that conventional feeling of loop you know i wonder why that is it does tend to be more common on computer systems to have the longer loop maybe it had you know i don't know more ram or something yeah i mean i think a lot of this comes to just fads and trends you know in that kind of area and in that time you know chris mentioned this but he kind of narrowly missed the whole demo scene he was a little bit too old for it but still he was coming out of that point in time and kind of that generation and so much of that music was these really long form songs and i think that was kind of they were maybe backlashing against the simplicity of some of the early video game music, maybe in a way, or, or whether or not... Well, and even if it's not a backlash, I think it's uh, the point of, like, I feel like a lot of demo scene and honestly a lot of early computer music, to me, almost feels like a way of both showing off the hardware capabilities and also kind of making a statement that the game, the music, everything should be considered art. You know, yeah, it's exactly. not just like trivial beeps and bloops. This can be a complete well, song. Well, and I think more than console music of the time, this is just electronic music. It's just, it's right. it's music that a lot of these people were interested in their own lives. And that's, that's what this point. sounds like. Well, right. That's a good point that the authenticity of it, you know, also yeah. electronic music being probably the genre of music that you can most authentically kind of uh, represent with this hardware. So that's another idea where yeah. I think that's an interesting distinction. I feel like a lot of times with console music, it feels like it's referencing jazz, rock, pop, things that, you know, you can't really accurately represent um, yeah. on a machine with a synthesizer. But when you think about kind of going for electronic music, there is sort of a natural overlap between the two. It's tailor-made for that kind of music. Absolutely. For now, we're going to move on. Uh, we opened up with the track from Mega Turrican. You guys heard some music from that um, in the background of the interview, but now we're going to play a track from the Amiga version, Turrican 3, pretty much the same game. Uh, this is my favorite track of Chris's entire career, and definitely from the Turrican series. This is a track called air combat in my opinion i think this is just a classic video game melody it's always in my head i just think it's really really fun this is air combat from the amiga version of turrican 3 such a strong end to that form this is just a masterful composition oh my gosh this is air combat from turrican 3 this is the amiga version came out in 1993 i love this track 
Oof. You know what I really love about this? That sort of arpeggiated figure, um, I think Marty would probably want to refer to it as a swivel chord, <laughs> but you know, when you have, for instance, you know, a triad, you know, three notes playing and it's oscillating between those three notes hitting and one pitch. It's, it's a, you know, mm -hmm. a figure if you're thinking about it on the piano. But what I really like about that pattern, not only does it keep that rhythmic drive, but the weak beats are what's playing the more denser chords and they're also higher up so it gives this really interesting syncopation because oh gosh, those yeah. weak beats kind of stand out you have bat, 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 bat. and also it just makes this kind of shuffle 12-8 feel really drive it's so it's, it's much more groove. unique though like you know i feel like you hear that shuffle feel a lot in well, video games you do and one thing that sets this track apart is it's not just banking on that cool feel like the groove is great like when this when the intro comes in it could have just been that but the melody is so beautiful and there's so many cool sections i just think this is just a 10 out of 10 in my book so now guys we're going to move on to um a track from super turrican this is yet another version of this game and of this soundtrack um it's cool to play an snes track to hear kind of how chris utilized those samples it's something that we're very obviously interested in this this console we're now going to play factory action which is stage one one from super turrican Factory Action from Super Turrican, composed by the wonderful Chris Hulsbeck. You know, now we're going to take some time to kind of reflect on the history of this podcast, because it really is hard for me to believe that we've already come up against 150 episodes. It's insane. Will, do you remember when we recorded the first episode... Uh, we didn't even have a blog yet. We had no idea what we were going to do. Thinking about that... We had no means of sharing to... <laughs> it at all. Compared to where we are now... It's just crazy. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the story of how we had the idea to even do this podcast. I remember it was in 2000, it was either late 2011 or like January of 2012. Will and I were sitting in the dining room just kind of talking and we just, we had been introduced to um, Emily Reese's show top score and also legacy music hour and we just got such a kick that first of all there was such a thing <laughs> as a video game music podcast but then we started talking like hey like what if we did that and we kind of looked at each right. other and i was like do you want to try it and it was literally just kind of a joke kind of just like oh this would be kind of fun to do and i guess the rest is history really well yeah i i do i i do remember that vividly it's kind of hard to believe it kind of was that long ago but I remember being really inspired by listening uh, to Top Score in particular, just because podcast to me felt like such a new medium that mm -hmm. it, it felt kind of unexplored. And, you know, it, I mean, it is kind of relatively new. The whole idea of like 
a radio show that you can listen to at any time. Well, yeah, and it was such a magical moment that this past fall we were able to be guests on Top Score, the show that really kind of introduced us and inspired us to even start our show. So it really kind of felt That's like a true. full circle moment. And just when I think back of all the great guests we've had on all of our seasons and right. all the, you know, the awesome podcasts that we've been guest on, one thing I have a quick little story that I remember when we were recording our first episode, um, we had mics that, you know, weren't necessarily designed for, for podcasting, but we didn't even have pop filters. So in order to, t- <laughs> in order to try to stop the sounds of the popping, well, do you remember what we did on that first episode? Yeah, we tried a lot of different things. Most of it just really didn't work out. I remember trying like bed sheets, like comforters. <laughs> Eventually we taped Kleenex to the end of the microphone. Oh my gosh. Nothing really worked. So if you listen back to the very first episode there's there a lot is of sort pops. of a muffled sound to it and yeah it's kind of poppy oh my god yeah it's funny it was just kind of we didn't really know what we were doing but building it from the ground up and i mean i feel so fortunate to have had this outlet in my life um kind of going through high school and now into college it's been an outlet for me to learn how to express myself for sure um clearly and i've learned so much more about music video game music composers a lot of things have been really helpful and also we've made so many good friends you know when we think about all of our awesome and very active listeners and kind of friends of the show people that may have other podcasts or blogs or just fans of video game music it's so fun now that we feel part of this community that really feels like it's growing every Every single week. Totally. Well, and I also kind of want to talk about just Super Mercado Brothers in general. I mean, I remember coming up with that name together and it was just kind of like a fun little name for the show, but it's really kind of evolved into something. Become something more. Well, it's like a name that I kind of feel proud of, you know, Carl, the music that we've both written together and now including Marty in that, um, you know, all the tribute albums we've done, the games that we've worked on and ones that we're currently working on. I'm just really, I, I feel very happy that it's kind of grown into, you know, hardcore like video game music outlet absolutely um, for us yeah so we've just had such a great time with the show and with our music and just in general we can't thank you guys enough for tuning in every week yeah and i think before we wrap things up i would like to give uh just a couple shout outs to people that were really grateful for first of all to chris hulsbeck again for coming on this episode we absolutely we love having these interview episodes and but at the same time we're at the liberty of who you know is willing to take time out of their day to do an interview with us so thanks again chris and thank you to everyone who's ever been a guest on our show i mean you've really helped to add new perspective and new insights to this whole program so we really appreciate that um i'd like to give a really special thanks to tim turry our friend from Game Informer. Uh, Tim, we can't thank you enough. I mean, so much of the connections that we've made so far in this industry and so much of uh, our kind of recent success in the last year, I really feel like we owe a lot of that to Tim. And Absolutely. We're beyond grateful. I'd also like to thank Marty, you know, our third brother, for always being kind of a really helpful voice. He's always been supportive of the show, both as far as contributing content, being a guest on the show, and giving but us But really, feedback. before, uh, for, it was very important before he was ever contributing anything. He was pretty much right. just like the first fan, the first you know loyal listener, and that was really helpful to have his ear every week. 
So yeah, thanks again, Marty. And last but not least, we have to thank all of you, the listeners. Yeah. You guys are so awesome. There's too many to name. You guys are just the best. We wouldn't be doing this show uh, without you guys. So thank you, thank you so much. We're going to play out with the main theme from Great Gianna Sisters for the C64. And stick with us because next week we have the premiere of Season 7. It's going to be a great time. Once again, my name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our Susquecentennial episode of sorts. (laughs) (laughs) Peace out, guys.